it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. I'm Jess Guffey, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Kate Rooney. Hello, Kate. Hello, Jessica. <laughs> so formal. We, we're such pretenders. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so formal when you start recording. That's that's not accurate at all. Just no. yeah, yeah, not really. What's 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 going on in your world? Oh, what's not going on in my world, Kate? You know, let's not talk about that. What I really care about is that uh, you have a really good story for me, and I've heard lots of updates, but I have no idea who you're talking about. You said it's Madonna esque, and that's all I know. And I'm really pumped because I know how much these projects take <laughs> to research. <laughs> so, like, Godspeed, first and foremost. But I, <laughs> I love creating a whole book report each week on top of work. I think um, so, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so 2020, right? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a weird year. Uh, and. Yep. Every day kind of feels like the same thing over and over again. Facts. Yeah, I mean, it's we're getting into the holiday season, which is nice. So I want to do like a holiday-themed episode today. But it's pretty easy to, to feel like Scrooge this year. You know, things are getting a little rough. And it feels like every day is the same thing over and over again. So kind of like Groundhog Day. So that's why today I am covering one of the most influential comedians of all time, the man, the myth, the actual legend, Bill Murray. <gasps> Kate! Oh my gosh. So he's been on my list for a really long time. and <laughs> I stole him. You did. And I'm happy you did because I just kept putting him off and like was not prepared to take that on. And I'm so pumped because I know a little <laughs> bit, but not a lot. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stories, and when I said Madonna-esque, it was kind of the same thing where it's like, I can't tell every single story, I can't talk about every movie that he's created, because that would just take forever. So instead, we're just going to talk about some of his most famous films, kind of his reputation in the industry, and the mythology behind his, this iconic actor, because there is kind of a, a mythology yes. behind him, as you may or may not know. I'm not so, going to say what I know about him. I know a decent amount because he's a big Cubs fan. So mm, there's a lot of lore around that. But I am pumped to hear his story from start to finish. Let's do this. I'm just so glad that you know. Well, obviously, you know who he is. But I'm glad that you you have more information than that. Because I wasn't sure. We never know with these episodes with when we're surprising no. the other person how much knowledge they already have about that person so no this uh, is the first one that i think we always said that this was going to happen but this is the first one that you beat me to cover ha. so i'm i'm here got for it. it got it and there's a reason why i was so adamant about covering him and we'll get into that later but let's kick it off with with just some quick backstory about mr bill murray over here he was born in illinois 
on September 21st, 1950. So as you just stated, Jess, he's, he's a huge Cubs fan. And in fact, uh, co-owns several minor league baseball teams to this day. So th- I was just going to ask if you're a Cubs fan, but that's a really stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is the sky blue? <laughs> yeah, escape. I didn't really have a choice. Um, shout out to Perry and Brian for that one, but... Yeah, I was born in Chicago, too, so I didn't really have much of a choice in that matter. Well, so was Bill Murray. Well, not in Chicago. He's kind of Wilmette. Do you know that area? Wilmette's actually the town that's right north of Evanston, where I went to college. So, yes, I do know Wilmette. Cool. So he was the fifth of nine children, and they were all raised in a very rowdy Irish Catholic family. Now, two of his brothers, actually three, really, but two of his brothers were famous actors that you may know. Uh, Brian Doyle Murray, who's who's been on Saturday Night Live. He's the voice of the Flying Dutchman in SpongeBob SquarePants. Yep. And there's also Joel Murray, who's in Darman Gregg, Shameless, Mad Men, one of my favorite shows. Yep. And they all kind of a, a, like were in movies together, including Caddyshack and Scrooge. One of his sisters, or their sisters, really is a nun, a performing <laughs> nun, going back to the Irish Catholic roots there. So just a little, oh my little background. And growing up, the money was pretty tight in the family. I mean, they have a hell of a lot of kids. So yep. not That's surprising. Like, an army. like, we have an <laughs> right? army of children at that point. <laughs> far too many i'm the youngest of four kids and that felt like way too many so i cannot imagine nine but because of that it kind of seemed like you know everyone's kind of trying to outdo one one another for attention it makes sense i I totally get that too the family's close but you know you're trying to stand out of the crowd of a bajillion people and at one point bill said no drunken audience could ever compare to working at our dinner table if you got a laugh it was like whoa (laughs) It was like winning National Merit Scholarship. Like you wanted to make, everyone just wanted to make one another laugh in the family. I feel like a lot of comedians come from big families. And that's Uh a very common theme amongst their sentiments towards growing up in a big family is like, you just have to vie for the laugh and then everything else is easy after that. If you can do it in your family, then you're set. Mm Mm-hmm exactly it's your first audience really and it's your family's gonna be like the most not judgmental but you know the harshest critics so to speak Eh, yeah maybe uh now bill was particularly close with his father uh edward murray and he he passed away when bill was 17 so he passed away when he was pretty young i think he was in his 40s which is really sad because he was close with his father and and took a lot of his, um, really attributed a lot of his sense of humor to his father, which is very dry and and punchy. (laughs) Yep. Now, of course, the family used laughter and comedy to cope. There's a story that even at the funeral, the whole family, the whole brood of them piles into the car and they all just start laughing hysterically. You know, it's like you're you're full of grief and it's been overwhelming and they just all collectively start laughing. They start making fun of people outside the car, like at, <laughs> at the funeral. And the driver was like, I don't even know what to do with these people. This is crazy. So uh, needless to say, I mean, their humor was a big part of the family. Almost like showmanship was part of the family. So we kind of see a little bit of this starting with Bolt Murray when he's younger. They say laughter is the best medicine. So It's true. Just That's inject it true. right into my veins, please. <laughs> 
Now, even though things were fun and lighthearted, he was still a troublemaker and a self-proclaimed troublemaker. So uh, you really wouldn't think that he would, or people didn't think that he would end up being super successful just because he was kind of like slobbish. He didn't do great in school. He got kicked out of Little League and Boy (laughs) Scouts just for, you know, disruption. Probably good on the Boy Um, Scouts front. We know how that turned out. Yeah, good good call. But honestly... (laughs) common theme we see none of these people that we cover are good in school so except madonna apparently. Mm-hmm. But not surprising no she's an enigma his parents wanted him to become a doctor so he didn't enroll in medical school but wasn't into it obviously and was just kind of aimless just didn't really have direction didn't he didn't want to do it he's just doing it to use his parents so you know we all make dumb mistakes when we're young sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't so here's a story of a, a very pivotal moment for our friend bill murray here uh in 1970 on his 20th birthday exactly his 20th birthday he had traveled to chicago to visit his family and celebrate and was about to fly back to denver where he was doing his pre-med studies but while he's waiting in line to board his flight at o'hare he made the mistake of telling uh, one of his passengers that he was carrying two bombs in his suitcase. <laughs> as you do. As a joke, you know? <laughs> Super casual-like. Uh, disclaimer, never do that. Don't joke about bombs at airports. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, a ticket agent overheard him and, of course, summoned, like, U.S. Marshals. Everyone comes in. They start rooting through all of his luggage. Now, they didn't find any explosives, but what they did find were five two-pound bricks of marijuana. <laughs> Knew you were going to go there. Oh, man. Bill. Bill. Also, quick side note, when my softball team would travel around, we'd be sitting in airports and playing this game, Spot It, which is super fun. You should look it up. But <laughs> one that? of the little icons that you look for is a bomb. So we would play it when we had layovers and like you the whole point is you hit the stack and then you get that card. So people would literally get so into it that they would scream bomb if they saw that. And then our coaches were like, yeah, we can't play this anymore because one of us is going to get arrested. (laughs) So please stop. Why would you play that at an airport? We didn't realize, you know, like at the time, because all the cards are different with the little icons. But there is a bomb icon. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact. If you're playing. Oops. Yeah. If you're playing spot it in an airport. Well, good thing you weren't carrying uh, bricks of weed with you. Yeah. (laughs) And you're traveling softball team. But would like, why would you make a joke about bombs if you had like a ton of weed with you? That just seems like you're not connecting the dots in your own brain at that moment Mm -hmm. to me. (laughs) The the amount of of weed he had with him was worth over $20,000 at that time. This is 1970. So it's like, Six times, ten times that amount now. Jeez. Was he dealing? <laughs> like He was. He was. That was the whole oh, okay. point. That's why he had it okay. with him. So he tries to stash these bags away, but the cops arrive and they arrest him, of course. He, he managed to sw- swallow a check from one of his quote-unquote customers. Swallowed the check? Uh, trying to, like, hide. Yeah, like, someone had written him a check to purchase the, the weed and he tried to swallow it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's hilarious. So, yeah, he everything was confiscated, of course, and he was charged with possession of marijuana in order to appear in court 
for uh, narcotics the next day. But because he was a first-time offender, they actually spared him jail time, and he was just placed on probation. But this is such a pivotal moment. Because of this, he dropped out of his medical school because he knew that his criminal record would, was going to get him kicked out, so he just dropped out before Smart. that could ever happen. Which, I mean, can you imagine Bill Murray is just like Dr. Murray now and <laughs> not the Bill nope. Murray that we know now? Because no. that never would have happened. So after dealing with all of this, his arrest and probation, he knew that he needed some sort of direction in his life. And his brother, Brian Doyle Murray, was already a member at the Second City, the improv comedy group yeah. in Chicago. So he invites his younger brother. Is like, dude, you need to get a life. Like, come do this. I think you'll be great at it. Come join us. So he did. He decided to join the crew. And he started to study under Del Close, uh, an actor and comedian who just taught other comedians the art. And his life just took a whole turn. And he began actually having a path because of the Second City uh, improv group. So eventually, Bill moves to New York City in the 70s. And there, the late, great John Belushi invites Bill to feature in the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Oh, man. This is the start of National Lampoon. He's there alongside Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, all these amazing comedians. Bunch of legends. Mm -hmm. And he's really hitting it off there. He's killing it. He, he never was actually a stand-up comedian. I didn't know that until doing this research. He never did stand-up, but he was always doing improv. He's always part of like a group, which really highlights like why he's been so successful. He's always in these... Like, ensemble casts and he works really well with with groups of people that makes sense yeah so now in 1975 there's an off-broadway version of the lampoon show and this is bill's first television role as a cast member of the abc variety show saturday night live with howard Cosell. So there's actually two, there were two different versions of the Saturday Night Live that we know now. There was one on ABC and there was one on NBC. So Bill Murray is recruited on the ABC version. Now, this one only lasted for about a year, but Lauren Michaels was working on the NBC version and he recruits Bill Murray to replace Chevy Chase on the NBC Saturday Night Live. It's so all coming together. That was kind of a lot of information that I just threw at you. And it took me a while to kind of understand this. But basically, these two networks were creating a similar show at the same time. One was with Howard Cosell, and that one didn't last long at all. The other one was with Lauren Michaels. And Chevy Chase was like the star of that show on NBC. Yep. But at the time, Chevy Chase was like about to become a huge star. And so he left to pursue his film career. And, and Bill Murray was hired to replace him. But there was already a lot of tension between Chevy Chase and the SNL cast at the time. He was just, yes. he was kind of an asshole. And by, I mean, kind of, he was an asshole. So <laughs> <laughs> he was just like a hot shot. He was mean. Uh, the fame had definitely gone to his head at this point. And he had a contract with Lorne Michaels and with NBC, but he totally weaseled his way out of the contract. And it caught Lorne Michaels by surprise. Like, everyone thought, like, oh, I thought we were friends. Like, what happened? So he just Lorne bails. Lorne is someone you don't want to piss off. Yeah, right? And this was the first year. Uh, honestly, I'll admit, I didn't know that Lorne Michaels was there since day one. Like, he created yeah. Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah legend yeah so they this was a big surprise and everyone's confused by it but lauren michaels hires bill murray and he makes his debut on the show but 
unlike Chevy Chase, the audiences didn't like Bill Murray at first. They thought he wasn't very good. He flubbed his lines and he was just kind of awkward in the first appearances. Now, eventually he finds his footing and he begins, he, he created his character, uh, Nick the Lounge Singer, which is like super iconic now. <laughs> and and later into, you know, by the time they had the, the third season, he like was super tight with the crew and he had basically just, they were doing fine without Chevy Chase. So uh, this is like all the people with Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, uh, all these huge, huge names that we know of now. But in 1978, Chevy Chase, for whatever reason, was invited back to host the show, and it just caused more issues. He shows up on set, and he's bossing people around. He's just, like, doing drugs in the studio. <laughs> That's cool. Oh. Together. So our guy, Bill Murray, he finally addresses the elephant in the room and tells Chevy Chase that everyone hates him, <laughs> and no one wants him there. <laughs> This turns into a whole shouting match, just like they're fighting with each other and just tension is escalating throughout the whole dress rehearsal. And Bill Murray zeroes in on Chevy Chase's well-known marital issues at the time, telling him, go f*** your wife, she needs it. And then (laughs) Chevy (laughs) Chevy Chase is making fun of Bill Murray's appearance and just getting really ugly. And then just before the show's about to air, because this is live, Chevy Chase confronts Bill Murray in Belushi's dressing room and challenges him to a fight. Oh, my God. (laughs) Grow up. (laughs) Men, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Literally. I know how to solve this. It's not going to be with logic. It's going to be with my fists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, like, start a full-on fist fight at this point in the dressing room. Jim Belushi has to get in between them and break them apart <laughs> oh as, like, God. fists are flying everywhere. Yeah, so then, like, literally this happens in the dressing room, and then almost immediately after, they call Chevy Chase to go deliver his monologue to the happy, totally clueless audience. <laughs> oh, my God. I... I can't even wrap my head around what that would look like in the studio. Like, we're about to go live, and you know they have, like, APs all around being like, come on, guys, come on, come on. You walk in and see that. <laughs> and everything's all hunky-dory. No one knows. That's that's show business, man. That's uh, behind the scenes. And then the audience yep. is none the wiser. Yep. Despite all of this craziness, despite a full-on, like, brawl going on between Chevy Chase and Bill Murray... That particular episode had the highest ratings for SNL to date. <laughs> not surprised. Right? I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. So I just had to add that story because, I mean, Chevy Chase is is possibly the worst. But, I mean, Bill Murray yeah. wasn't going to just, like, sit down and take it. I mean, of course, that's going to lead to blows. Well, it says a lot about him that he was willing to call him out when no one else was. I think. Right? Like, yeah. That's a big he, testament to his character. That's kind of his attitude is like, he doesn't care. He's just going to say, he's going to say the truth. But another reason why I wanted to bring this up is just because how monumental Bill Murray's career was on, or his whole appearance on Saturday Night Live. He was there for the first three seasons of the show from 1977 to 1980. And he was part of the original Not Ready for primetime players that's what they called themselves mm-hmm. that was dan Aykroyd, john belushi chevy chase george Coe, jane Curtin, gilda radner it's a lot of the people who who came from the second city and national lampoon so 
they called themselves the not ready for primetime players because they weren't these big celebrities yet. They were not ready for primetime. And yet they totally transformed that show. I mean, Saturday Night Live was not an immediate hit at first. It was this group of comedians that totally shaped it to what we know and, and love now. I love it. And I love Gilda Radner. I wish we could do an episode on her, but I feel like we'd be doing her a disservice because she's not the worst and not even close to being the worst. <laughs> well, fun fact, I, I didn't know this until doing my research, but apparently she and Bill Murray dated while they were on the show together. So it was really on the set of Saturday Night Live that Bill Murray created this, like, his persona, which is like this kind of <laughs> sleazy, insincere, comedic character who's like, that's kind of his calling card. That's what we see yep. in a lot of his films. And he also earned an Emmy Award for outstanding writing for his work on the show. So, I mean, I forgot how much, like, what his role was in creating Saturday Night Live. Like, it wouldn't be the show that we have now years yeah. later if it weren't for him i think a lot of people forget about it because he's still so relevant and he's still prolific mm -hmm. that it's not the first thing that comes to mind you think of caddyshack you think of everything else but you don't think of snl because it's the first thing you basically did so. yeah yeah and of course it didn't take long for bill murray to move on from the small screens to the big screens and his first major film role was in the 1979 box office hit meatballs have you ever seen this movie? <laughs> I've just seen no. bits and pieces of it. It's it's like meatballs. Meatballs. It's like a camp counselor. It's have you ever oh seen the movie um, Heavyweights? It just reminds me of that. I don't okay. know if you that's your generation or not, but we're uh, the same generation. Calm down. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, you were born. <laughs> So Meatballs was written by Harold Ramis, who's another Second City member, National Lampoon member. Uh, and this would be the first of six collaborations between the two, uh, mm. Harold and Bill. But there's a reason why there's only six. There's a nasty feud between the two of them, which we'll touch on later. But Bill, wanna, this not is another the, this fist is fight. When they, <laughs> this is when they started their relationship, which is huge. Okay. So right after this movie, he appears in this biographical movie called Where the Buffalo Roam, 1980. And that's where he's playing Hunter S. Thompson. Now, while they were creating this movie, Hunter S. Thompson was a big part of it. Like, he was on set with Bill Murray, and they collaborated a lot together. And it said that he actually kind of, like, really transformed into Hunter S. Thompson. Ooh, going method. Uh -huh. Love that for him. He went super method in it, and... Within yeah, within the first two weeks of filming, people were saying that he's he's turned into Hunter. And during the production, the two of them would start to get like super competitive with each other. Like who could outdo one another with their craziness? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a quote that says like one day at the Colorado home after many drinks and after much arguing over who could out Houdini whom, Thompson tied Billy to a chair and threw him in the swimming pool. Billy nearly drowned before Thompson pulled him out. So they were just like n lampoons, straight Again, up lampoons over here. Just boys being boys. Like, mm -hmm. what is the logic behind that? Who knows? They probably didn't even either. Yeah, people were even saying like they didn't know how to even talk to Bill Murray at the time. You couldn't talk to him because he would only respond as Hunter S. Thompson, which is weird because like, I feel like he didn't do a lot of method acting after this. It was like this one time he really went into it. 
I literally can't think of one role where he's not just his normal self, you know? Well, that's kind of the thing, which we'll, we'll definitely touch on later, but he tends to kind of play himself. So maybe the method acting has reversed and now he's method living his roles. Ooh, that was so meta. You just scrambled my brain. (laughs) Hot takes. So even though this whole film with Hunter S. Thompson, even though he went full on Hunter S. Thompson, the movie is a flop. But in 1980, he totally redeems himself <laughs> by going back totally. to his, <laughs> totally redeems himself by going back to his comedic roots. But the cult classic, you may have heard of it, Jess Huckleberry's heard of it, Caddyshack. I've never seen that movie. Really? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> so I've like, seen that movie. What? <laughs> of course. You know my parents. Of course I've seen that movie. I would be very shocked and appalled if you had not. Uh, I actually Ooh. rewatched this again recently, and I was rolling. I forgot how funny this, this movie it's is. It's freaking timeless. You could pull it's so many quotes from it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I have some fun facts here. Uh, this, this is also directed by his pal, Harold Ramis. They were basically brothers they were so close and the whole film was really inspired by the co-writer and co-star his brother brian doyle murray because they all worked all the brothers worked at indian hills club in illinois as as caddies they worked at you know the snack bar and stuff like that so they drew a lot of inspiration from their real life experience and a lot of the characters in the film are based off, you know, encounters that they actually had at the club, including the I famous scene so with, with the the baby Ruth and the the candy bar and the swimming pool. Like that actually <laughs> happened to them when they were younger. So it's so timeless. <laughs> I know. Originally, Bill Murray's character, the groundskeeper Carl Spackler, it was supposed to be just like a quick cameo, but his characterization of it was so funny that Harold Ramis requested that he stick with it and just stick with the production. Not surprised. Jess, as you may recall, the lead in that film is none other than Chevy Chase. And this is the only film that Chevy Chase and Bill Murray have appeared in together. Not surprised. Yet again. <laughs> right? <laughs> That famous scene where Chevy Chase hits his ball into Bill Murray's, well, let me call them by their character name, where Ty Webb hits his ball into Carl Spackler's shack, that was added in later by Harold Ramis once they, he realized that the two like hated each other, because they still hated each other at this point. It was, it was pretty known that they yeah. had that feud at SNL. So they wrote it specifically to kind of like, they sat down and like worked through all of their issues and stuff to create the scene. And that scene is so funny. I love it's that so scene. Good. Just play it where you lie, you know? <laughs> and we'll see this a lot. So Bill Murray was, I mean, he was in the Second City improv group, but he improvises in every film that he's in. And for yeah. this film in particular, he only filmed for a total of six days and all of his lines including the famous Dalai Lama speech that he has, were improvised on the spot. Yeah, like, like that that's whole... some creative genius right there. I mean, to I just know. be able to spew bullshit and have it make sense and be hysterical, that's <laughs> that's a different level of creativity, I think. That whole speech, the whole, like, Cinderella speech that he gives, it, it Cinderella became... Cinderella story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was added to, to the list of, like, greatest movie quotes of all time, and it's 100% improvised on the spot. So just kind of showing, like, his genius. I mean, he comes up with this stuff on the spot, and it's timeless, it's hilarious, and it's brilliant. Really. You know, 
I really hope that kids these days watch these movies, and I don't know if they do. I think they're too busy on TikTok, but like, I really <laughs> hope that they, their parents show them these films because they are know. timeless. I feel like Bill Murray kind of has that he's so hip and cool that it's almost cool to like Bill Murray, at least these days with, with the I hope so. Crowd. So even if they don't know this whole backstory with him, they kind of know. Uh, I didn't even add this in my research, but you may have seen his, like, you know, the chive, that whole community online that's yeah. it's a younger group of like memes and stuff like that they have a whole like line of bill murray merch interesting and i think that's kind of carried his legacy over into newer generations which is really interesting i hope so so kate yes jess we talk a lot on the podcast about how people creative specifically may or may not be the worst yeah right we, we've heard a lot who actually are the worst but you know who isn't the worst who's that design pickles friendly and reliable designers oh wait do they make pickles or yes what's going on here it's actually pickle manufacturing no kate it's flat rate unlimited graphic design and custom custom illustration services Ooh, i love custom uh Yeah, Design Pickle is actually one of the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America. We've won a ton of awards for our unlimited creative services and and design. It's so awesome. It's so helpful if you are a podcaster or content creator in general, because you sign up, we match you with one of our professional designers, and you work with them, and not being passed around to different freelancers, which is really, really cool for brand consistency. Yeah, it is. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you get a special discount. If you use the code WORST at checkout, you get $100 off your first month for any plan. Ooh, any plan. $100 off any plan. That's We have our essentials plan for just your basic design needs. There's pro if you need more advanced work with same-day delivery or custom illustrations too, where you can submit unlimited requests for 100% original artwork. $100 off. That is a sweet, sweet dill, if I would say myself. So obviously Caddyshack was a huge success, still is to this day, but he continues a whole string of successes in film, including the army comedy Stripes, he's in Tootsie. It's one and of then, the Guffy family favorites, by the way, Stripes is. That's <laughs> one that I still have not seen. Maybe I'll watch <gasps> that with you guys. Hey! Oh my god, my dad would love to watch that with you. It's like one of his favorites. I'd love to watch that with Bry Guy. There are so many quotable lines. But so after he's in Stripes, he appears in another film you may have heard of before called Ghostbusters in 1984. The best. I love Ghostbusters. And apparently, this film was inspired by Dan Aykroyd's actual fascination with the paranormal like he really believes in the paranormal love that for him yeah and the role of peter venkman that's who bill murray plays that wasn't written for bill murray but it was written for john belushi of course he unfortunately passed away and so bill murray took the part but with some strict caveats to this he basically didn't want to get a paycheck for it but instead he wanted to secure funding from columbia records for his own picture called the razor's edge spoiler alert 
the razor's edge flopped horribly. We'll we'll talk yeah. a little bit more about this later, but basically like that was his passion project and the only way that he would agree to do Ghostbusters is if they agreed to fund this film that he was trying to create. It's a little diva like Bill. I mean, I get having a passion project, but come on. Mm-hmm. Just do the damn movie. <laughs> How very artsy and creative of you. Mhm. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole casting Bill Murray was basically the whole success of Ghostbusters. The the film ended up earning over $282 million during its initial release, and that made it the highest-grossing film of all time at that point. And that's not even including the sequel and all the merchandise and all of that. And the so, remake, too. They just did yeah. a remake with all females. It's true. And it's it, there's a reason why it's so popular. I mean, it has this like perfect blend of comedy, action, horror. It's it's all the stuff we love, you know. And it's and such Bill, a good film. It's so good. And Bill Bill Murray's performance, of course, was singled out for praise. Like he really stood out from the bunch. And of course, his lines are ad libbed in almost every single scene. How? Just how? Yeah. How do you come up with that? <laughs> so one of the producers said they were filming a scene and the door would sling open. We never knew what Bill was going to say. He did about 10 things and I'd say seven of them were great. So there's this famous scene where they capture Slimer in the hotel and they were all just like Bill Murray. Every time they, he came out, he would say something different. And they went with the line that he created at the time, which was, we came, we saw, we kicked it, its ass. And that's like another iconic line that he just totally came up with on the fly. I love that. Yeah. So we touched on The Razor's Edge before, so let's go back to that. Because despite Ghostbusters' success, he didn't make any money off of it. Because it was like his most financially successful movie, honestly. But because of his negotiations with Columbia Pictures, he wanted to finance his personal project instead. And so, yeah, he didn't make any money off of it because the, he wanted to create The Razor's Edge, which is like, it's about a World War One veteran who's searching for the meaning of life. So more serious for him. Uh, v- very much so. It's, he okay. co-wrote the script and it was his first real dramatic role. And this was released in 1984 and it was just both the critical and commercial bomb that... Uh, it grossed six million dollars in theaters. Compare that oh. to the two hundred eighty-two million of, of Ghostbusters, and he opted and out. If you do inflation for Ghostbusters revenue, I mean, my God, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, it it seems like audiences were just weren't ready for a serious Bill Murray yet. He's already been on SNL. He's created like Caddyshack, Ghostbusters. He's known for being this yeah. hilarious man, which. I get it. You know, we've kind of talked about this with our other episodes and other people that we cover is like, you kind of get pigeonholed into one thing. And when you try to do something else, no one really gets it and they're not ready for it. So you're just kind of, it doesn't have to be a project, I think. And two things come to mind. One is when Prince kept trying to do that, when he was pigeonholed after Purple Rain, his whole mission was, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to be pigeonholed. And I get it because you don't want to do the same thing the rest of your career if you're that creative. Mm -hmm. But the person that comes to mind is very similar to Bill Murray in this aspect is Adam Sandler. But he was able to break the mold of all of his rom-coms and all the comedies that he's done with Uncut Gems, and it worked out. So it's like 
the fact that they're willing to take the risk in the first place, I think is half the battle and it's a toss up if it's going to be a success for them or not. And in Adam's case it was, but in so many other creatives that we talk about, it's just not something that works out for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the world at large. No one really understands what you're trying to do and they see you as this clown already. So they're not ready to see you in another light. That's not to say that he wasn't able to, well, that's later in this episode, but at the time, it was too early. Like He was still sort of new in his career, despite massive success. And it was also like his personal project, too. So it wasn't... That's a pretty stark change from like you yeah. being Nick the Lounge Singer to being, you know, portraying a, a World War One vet searching for the meaning of life. That's pretty dark. Well, and that's a good point. Like timing has a big thing to do with everything with fame, I think celebrity all of that stuff and i think going back to sandler like that's probably why his worked is because people have been around him for so long that they're like ready for something else whereas bill's like i want to do this and he doesn't think about the fact that he's only been famous for what seven years at that point it's not been a very long time so maybe that's the aspect that (laughs) creatives maybe you should consider that going forward (laughs) give yourself some breathing room even if it's a passion project. I I love Adam Sandler, though. I will die on a hill for him. (laughs) I will defend him. I know a lot of people are uh, kind of hit or miss, but he's so brilliant. But but what we're saying, though, is like, yeah, but it got to Bill Murray. Like, he was so depressed from this, from it not, because he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he wanted to break away from that comedy scene for a little bit and do what, he was passionate about but since it flopped like he became so upset he took a break from hollywood and, and the world of comedy in general and he was just out of the scene for four years that it, it hit him that hard that he had to just kind of peace out for a while well we also see that with creatives i feel like i don't want to overinflate it but i think a lot of times they're very sensitive and particularly as one should be when it's your personal work, especially if it's something that you mm-hmm. care about deeply, but they take things really, really hard when it doesn't go their way. I've never experienced that in my life. So weird. <laughs> sure, sure. Sure, sure. Now, the whole reason why I wanted to, well, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Bill Murray for our special holiday episode is because he made a comeback after this four year hiatus. With the film Scrooged, which is a a very darkly comedic version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Classic. Hey, do you remember back in our P.T. Barnum episode when I told you what a humbug was, Jess? (laughs) Yes! It's so timely Yeah, a humbug is a farce. It's a farce. Christmas dinner. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this was kind of a stretch. I was like, let's do a holiday episode. Let's do Bill Murray, because he was in Scrooge. Because it wasn't like the biggest film that he's done. And it was kind of just like a modest box office hit. In fact, like it, it, it's a pretty dark film if you go back and watch it. It's not. It's not that okay. That whole story is just that's not true. Great. I mean, Charles Dickens. Let's be it's, real. It's all dark. Yeah, yeah. It's not this like super cozy, lovely holiday film that y'all think of. But and critics didn't really know how to respond to that because we're used to seeing these like holiday specials and stuff like that. It was. It's pretty bleak to be honest. And Roger Ebert in particular just came down really hard on it, saying it was one of the most disquieting, unsettling films to come along in quite some time. And... Uh, Quick side note on Roger Ebert. 
what an icon <laughs> he's from chicago and i would just like to point out that the adjectives that he uses uh, <laughs> or he used to describe films like if you're ever bored just look up his reviews and read them because they're so great he's got a thesaurus on him <laughs> yeah <laughs> They, yeah. I didn't even put this in my notes, but they eventually were like buddy buddies, and and there's like an interview where where Bill Murray calls him out. I was like, why'd you hate it so much? Like, what's the deal? And Roger Ebert says something. It's like it looks like we're watching your character just have a mental breakdown at the end, and it really oh just seemed like that. Like it's supposed to be this kind of inspirational moment where he's like, I get it, I believe in the Christmas spirit, and it. Roger Ebert's like, no, it just seemed like you're just this madman who's going on a rant. And it really does <laughs> kind of feel that way. But guess what, Jess? There's more ad-libbing in this film. Of course. <laughs> the director, Richard Donner, he described the experience of directing Murray as follows. It's like standing on 42nd Street in Broadway, and the lights are out, and you're the traffic cop. He's superbly creative, but occasionally difficult. So, yeah, that checks he, out. he would come up with things on the fly, uh, but was obviously extremely creative. He had a vision for every film that he was in, and that made it really difficult for directors, of course, to manage that. But there's this weird dichotomy that we'll see over and over again, where it's like the people that he's working with are like, he sucks to work with. He's difficult, but it's kind of worth it because of his brilliance and his creativity. <sighs> And I struggle with that, too. Like, that's so frustrating. It's like, this person is so good, and I hate them, but I can't hate them because they're so good at what they do. You know it's what I mean? It's so true of creative people. doesn't matter the fields. Like, the really, really, yeah. really top-notch people, you're like, oh, my God, shut up. Just do the job already. <laughs> A lot of people are just putting up with him because he comes up with lines on the fly that become like some of the most iconic lines in film history. Exactly. So you just kind of put up with it. And I'm not saying that should excuse anyone's behavior by any means, but I don't know. I don't think he was like evil. Yeah. But okay, we're we're not at the end of the episode yet. So we'll we'll decide at the end. So we're going to skip over some time because he's been in other films at this point. Now we're in the 90s and he stars in the cult classic comedy Groundhog Day. Oh, basically yeah. all of 2020 is what you're saying. Right. It's just been Groundhog Day since then. This is the fifth collaboration between Bill Murray and writer-director Harold Ramis. And, or actually the sixth, I guess, but it would be the last, as I said before. Now, Bill Murray kind of has this penchant for tearing apart scripts, and, you know, kind of like looking at it and being like, well, I could do this better, so to speak. And <sighs> I mean, he's not wrong. I know. I know. Groundhog Day is no exception. He had a very different vision for this film that would be more serious. It was, it was a serious look at the monotony of life kind of like an existential look at how things are the same over and over again versus the kind of straightforward comedy that it is. And so Harold Ramis and Bill Murray fought constantly over that. Like oh, Bill Murray had his vision, boy. Harold Ramis had his, and they butted heads constantly. And at the time, Bill Murray was going through stuff at home, some personal issues. He's going through his divorce at the time. So his behavior was just becoming more and more problematic on set. He'd, he'd basically, like, he'd fail to turn up sometimes, or he'd throw tantrums. Uh, <laughs> throw tantrums? Is he a toddler? <laughs> like, what are you uh, doing? Uh, yeah, right? I don't know. 
it's it's like he saw his vision and if he wasn't going to have it his way, he was going to be upset about it because he felt like his was the ultimate. I don't know. Strange. I get it because it's consistent with every other creative that we've ever talked about. But it's still like I just part of me is like, grow up. Just grow up. I know. <laughs> get over yourself. <laughs> they would have such intense creative differences that one day Harold Ramis, who this is very uncharacteristic for him. He's allegedly like a very nice, calm guy. He grabbed Bill Murray by the shirt collar and threw him against a, a wall <laughs> because they were just clashing <laughs> so much against the film. It's like, dude, I'm over your stuff. So they're filming all of this. They, they still get it done. But by the time that they finished wrapping up, Bill Murray just completely shut Harold Ramis out. And these guys had created huge films together. Yeah. People kept saying that they were like brothers. They were very, very close. And Bill Murray just stopped talking to him, would not contact him at all, just completely shut him out. And some people speculated that it was maybe because Bill Murray was like, he thought a lot of people claimed that Harold Ramis was responsible for Bill Murray's career. Okay. Sensitive. Yeah. And so these two guys who created some of the most iconic films of all time, they didn't speak to each other for over 20 years. Not at all. Until they reconciled right before Harold's death. He got really sick. And, you know, okay, I don't know. I I saw this in an article and I don't know how valid it is. But allegedly, Bill Murray showed up unannounced to Harold's house. This is while he's on his deathbed, mind you. He shows up to his house at 7 a.m. with a box of donuts and a police escort. (laughs) And Harold Ramos was so ill at this point, he had totally like lost his ability to speak. So Bill Murray just did most of the talking. They didn't rehash any of the events that happened between them. And they just hung out, laughed, and made amends. So literally Groundhog Day is what caused them to have this whole divide. They didn't talk for over 20 years. And then on Harold Ramis's deathbed, Bill Murray shows up with a box of donuts. It's like, is that like the guilt? Cool, right? <laughs> like that's where my brain goes. Probably. I mean, he didn't come from an Irish Catholic family, but yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't. I just have a hard time with that because I think anyone that can shut people out of their yeah life that's like so important to them, and they were such good friends. You said they were basically brothers. It's just like, is that your own ego and your creativity getting in the way of you having a really important person in your life every day? I just. I really struggle to understand that. I feel like that takes more effort to shut someone, to actively it shut does. someone out like that than it is to just make amends and, and grow up and Life's move on. too short. Yeah. So despite all these issues, of course, Groundhog Day was just another huge hit for the two. I will say, Bill wasn't just fighting with Harold Ramis, though. He's also fighting with the Groundhog, whose name was Scooter. And... How do you fight with a Groundhog? <laughs> like, uh, he had... I don't know. You yell at him for having creative differences. And Scooter, Scooter get your shit together. <laughs> Scooter bit him three times. So <laughs> that just kind of like fueled Bill Murray's rage, I think. It was just like, this movie sucks. And Scooter keeps biting me. So I'm miserable. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I mean, they kind of took both of their ideas and merged them together, which makes it that's why it's such an iconic and original film. Like, yes, it's it's a comedy, but it also kind of has that existential woe to it of same shit, different day, 
which I think we can... It gets you thinking, and I think I've referenced it at least 35 times in 2020 alone. Right? Yeah. So after the success of Groundhog Day, he appeared in a bunch of well-received supporting roles. Uh, He's in Kingpin. Of course, he's in Space Jam, where he plays himself. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Welcome to the jam. Come on and slam. But then in 1998, he plays what many believe to be one of his finest roles, and that's in Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Love that movie. Have you seen it? Don't ask me that question, because no, I haven't. I don't even know why I ask you, because I know you've seen, (laughs) quote, four movies, (laughs) but have you seen any Wes Anderson films? I have. I have. I just haven't seen that one. It's fantastic. It makes sense that the two of them got along so well, but... Yes. So this was the first Wes Anderson film that Bill Murray appeared in. And before that all happened, Wes Anderson sent him the script. And Bill Murray just, like, he never got back to him. But one day, Wes Anderson is in, like, this big meeting at Disney's, like, in the executive office. And Bill Murray calls the Disney office to get in touch with Wes Anderson to say that he was going to be in Rushmore. But Wes Anderson had no idea how he even knew, how Bill Murray even knew that he was there. Like, how did he get in touch with him? It was so out of the blue. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And the only other time that Wes Anderson saw Bill Murray before they started filming was at, like, the Four Seasons in Los Angeles because they needed to take some pictures for the film. So Bill Murray just, like, randomly shows up, as he does, and they end up, like, just having some drinks at the bar downtown But then, of course, Bill Murray just, like, starts dancing and takes the whole place over. And Wes Anderson has been recorded saying, that was the first experience I had of how a room could get swept up by Bill Murray. Because that's what we see. He just totally commands the room. He just shows up out of nowhere, uh, which is part of the Bill Murray mystique. Yes, and it ties back to his ability to just spew bullshit and make it iconic. (laughs) Like... So I think those two things are correlated to be able to take over a room like that and to also just be uh-huh. so wildly creative. Uh, so even for this role, which was another successful hit, Bill Murray only was paid $9,000, but he paid <laughs> he paid for some of the production. There was one part that like, there's a, you've seen it. There's a famous helicopter scene in Rushmore. And <laughs> there was drama about that. The studio couldn't afford it. And Bill Murray is just like, here you go. Here, here's $25,000 to pay for this. So he paid for the production of it, even though he made far less off that movie. And this film kind of kicked off a whole renaissance for Bill Murray, kind of establishing him more as kind of an independent film actor, so to speak. And Bill Murray has appeared in, I think, every Wes Anderson film since then. Yes. I mean, their collab... Yeah, the collaboration between the two spans over a decade and a half, and Wes Anderson has stated that he always writes films with Bill Murray in mind. So he's, like, actually creating characters for Bill Murray. I can't think of a single one that doesn't have him in it, and I've seen most Yeah, Wes even if movies. he's not starring in it, he still has a cameo mm-hmm. at some point. And he's hysterical in true Bill Murray form. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill Murray famously does not have an agent or a manager. We kind of talked about how he has this mystique. He just sort of shows up whenever he wants to. He calls directors whenever he wants to. So in in lieu of having a manager or an agent, he has or had an 800 number. (laughs) 
<laughs> which of course isn't Rolls. listed, but yeah, just rather it's just kind of like passed around Hollywood's inner circles by word of mouth. And if anyone, a director, a journalist, his dentist needs to speak with him, they don't go to him. They they leave a message on the 800 number. And if Bill Murray wants to speak with you, he'll call you back. But he just really doesn't give a goddamn about <laughs> getting in touch or, you know, being proactive about that. I can't decide if it's like the biggest ego play ever or if it's just genius right? to stay out of Hollywood and be selective about it. I can't decide. Exactly. It's like, it's, I'm so torn. I'm like, man, I would, lo- that's brilliant. It makes so much sense. You're probably hounded by people all the time and you don't want to have to deal with an agent. You're just like, call my number. I'll get back to you if I'm interested. He has missed out on opportunities because of it. Yeah. But that, I mean, I'm sure he's okay with it. I think, I think one opportunity that he missed, like he was supposed to play Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story and he missed the call. So he didn't get it, but I don't think that would have changed his trajectory in any way. He also sucks at negotiating contracts because <laughs> you should probably have at least negotiated royalties for yourself in Ghostbusters. Just a thought, but you know. I don't think he cares. Neither here he nor there. That's his, that's his whole persona. He just doesn't really care. And anyone who calls that number, they shouldn't even like expect a timeline of when they'll hear back from him or even if they'll hear back at all. Because, I mean, he says like, it's not like a certain time that he checks the messages. It's Some days he'll go weeks without checking them. You know, it's just on a whim. Whatever Bill feels like, Bill does. So one very famous director who called his 800 number was none other than Sofia Coppola. (laughs) And this is at the time that Bill Murray was really trying to take a turn towards more dramatic roles. So Sofia Coppola wrote the script for Lost in Translation, a famous 2003 film. And she wrote the role of Bob Harris with Bill Murray in mind. Just basically the entire project lived or died on whether or not Bill Murray would agree to, to play the role. So she calls his 800 number, doesn't hear back and he eventually like met with her and was like yeah i'll do it but like you said just he didn't sign a contract like nothing was signed nothing was official so just like his word of mouth he said yeah sure i'm down this sounds awesome sofia coppola was so nervous because she's like okay the whole film (laughs) hinges on you agreeing to do this i would freak out yeah, so they started production. They they dropped a lot of money into it, still having no idea whether or not he was going to show up. And literally, like, the week of them starting to film, he appears in Tokyo. He was there. He just shows up. That's mu- Especially, I mean, 2003, still a little bit of a different time than now, but you're still connected. You can get a hold of people oh, when yeah. you want to. Email was still very much a thing back then. So like, not with Bill Murray. God, that not gives me anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course he improvised a lot in this film. In one part of the film, there's a scene where they're at a sushi bar and in the script, Sofia Coppola just wrote, he tries to make her laugh. So that's what's in the script. And Bill Murray just does the rest. He just, makes her laugh of course being himself yeah so this film was huge for his career it it led to the some of the strongest reviews he's ever had and his first academy award nomination and he's been on record yeah he's been on record saying that it's his favorite film that he's been in and it's probably because it is pretty close to his real life i mean it's about this kind of 
older actor who's fading from the spotlight and kind of struggling for direction at this point. So he's been in all these like big comedy hits and he clearly, even since the beginning when he wanted to do The Razor's Edge, it sounded like he wanted to be in more serious films at the time. So he loved this. He loved being able to kind of portray his own persona, so to speak. So then in 2015, Bill and Sophia team up again to create A Very Murray Christmas, which <laughs> appeared on Netflix. Have you seen it? Oh, I just said, I have. I have watched this. It's, and it's so cute. It's so fun. It's super fun. So they, yeah, they gather like all of their famous friends. It's a huge ensemble, uh, including George Clooney, Chris Rock, Maya Rudolph, Jason Schwartzman, Rashida Jones. And it's almost like they just kind of wanted to get a bunch of their friends together at yeah. the Carlisle in New York and just like, sing some Christmas songs and do some very silly sketches. And that's what they did. But the whole A Very Murray Christmas, it really like kind of conforms to Bill Murray's persona again. it's yep. He's kind of making his own rules for a Christmas special. This is kind of pulling from or pulling inspiration from those classic variety shows where people are totally. just kind of popping in and doing random bits. Uh, but he exhibits it all in that kind of like same dry, monotone demeanor. And I, I felt like it's kind of a peek into an actual Bill Murray Christmas. Which, you know, they have karaoke, they have random encounters yep. and a lot of alcohol. They're drinking a lot. But it's it's super fun. Yeah, it's I watched it on a whim when it first came out. And yeah, it's just there's a lot going on. It's pretty random, but you kind of feel cozy watching it. Totally. I don't we watched it i think last year in my family and it was like parts of it were a little cringy but then you're like no Mm -hmm. this is actually we get it because it's bill murray and it's always just because it's bill murray and having done more research into his backstory in his life it's like oh yeah that's it's bill like i imagine that's what christmas looks like inside of bill murray's house and I just, I mean, I loved everyone that he brought on there. Like, Chris Rock is so iconic in his own right. And Rashida, uh-huh. I mean, all of those people are, but. Hey, even Miley Cyrus comes oh, out. Oh, I and forgot she about the that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A random collab. Super fun. So I just said, I mean, it, uh, peeking into his life with these random encounters, lots of crazy stuff going on. So speaking of random encounters. Jess, you may have heard of all these uh, famous stories where Bill Murray is just kind of like randomly appearing in people's lives when they're least expecting (laughs) it. So you might be asking, what's up with all those Bill Murray stories? Is it a publicity stunt? Is it, you know, is it just performance art? We don't really know. (laughs) Maybe. A lot of the stories, it's Murray has been reported to whisper the line, no one will ever believe you. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. Um, But you never know. There's been a lot of uh, mystery around this. A lot of, I don't know, legend, lore around it, so to speak. There's an entire website about it called BillMurrayStory.com. Just devoted to, to telling stories of... Him crashing parties, joining people in the park, just appearing out of nowhere to steal food off your plate. There's also a a new documentary that came out called The Bill Murray Stories, Life Lessons Learned from a Mythical Man. Uh, And Bill Murray was not a part of that project. It was just talking or interviewing people who have witnessed this. 
and speculating about why he does it, trying to find the, the deeper meaning behind it. But so let's talk about it. So some of these stories include there's there's a ton. There are a ton. If you go on that website, BillMurrayStory.com, I have to now. it's endless. Yeah, it's a black hole. But I'm just going to touch on a couple highlights here. But there was one where he rode in a taxi and the taxi driver mentioned that he had to work 14 hours a day and never had time to play the saxophone. That was his passion. So Bill Murray got in the in the driver's seat and drove the car for hours while the taxi driver just sat in the back seat and played the saxophone. <laughs> they, yeah. That's they even really like stopped sweet. to eat barbecue at one point. <laughs> yeah, the guys just sit in the back, jamming on the sax while Bill Murray's driving. There's that famous moment where he crashed an engagement shoot in Charleston, North Carolina, wound up posing for a photo with the couple. And I loved this one because I heard an interview with Bill Murray where he's talking about it. And he says, like, I don't try to do this. Like, I'm just living my life and I see things. I'm like, I can, you know, hang out, whatever. <laughs> and he out? said something about how <laughs> he saw he saw the couple and he could see that they were like really truly in love like they weren't getting married just to get married they just really loved each other and it was just a beautiful moment so he wasn't there to be like and i'm bill murray come take pictures of me like they saw him and they invited him so it was it's cool he's read poetry to a group of construction workers <laughs> on a whim one time <laughs> During the famous uh, South by Southwest Festival in Austin, he showed up to a bar. It was super crowded and got behind the bar and started serving shots of tequila. <laughs> and it didn't matter what I you ordered. I would live for that moment. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. How fun is that? Yeah. It didn't matter what you ordered, though. He would still just serve you a, a shot of tequila. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, one time in 2007, he was in Sweden for a, a charity golf competition and at one point, he, like, took a golf cart and was driving down downtown Stockholm erratically <laughs> and got pulled over by the Swedish police. And they, he refused a breathalyzer, and they did a blood test, and he he wasn't drunk. Like, he just was crazy. <laughs> so he uh, may or may not be able to go back to Sweden because there was a bunch of legal issues oh there. Oh, my God. In 2019, he applied to work at a P.F. Chang's at the Atlanta airport. <laughs> got the job but i don't think he's working there um, oh my God. now i'm not a trendsetter by any means i'm far from it but i would like to claim that i had a meeting bill and murray story before it was cool so oh. Jess, i have in fact met bill murray back in about 1995 ish wow. i was yeah, I was about seven, and uh, I was down in San Diego, which he has, he has obviously has like a few houses, but he has a house in kind of like the Escondido area, mm-hmm. and I was there with like a family friend, it was two families there all together at this little tiny Italian restaurant in just Escondido, and we were kind of in like a, a separate room, you know, when you have like a room for parties and stuff like that, so it was our group and then at another table it's bill murray and his entire family and they were there celebrating another birthday because no uh, yeah i i was probably like i don't know seven at the time and his kids were younger at the time so we're all kind of running around the room together playing around and i think he appreciated the fact that we weren't you know ooing and awing over him because he was already huge at this point yeah so 
we kind of sang happy birthday with each other for each other's group. So I was able to sing happy birthday with Bill Murray. That's really, really cool. And (laughs) I feel like that's one of those things that you will never forget as long as you live. No, absolutely not. And I before while while I was researching for this episode, I was asking all my family members, like, what do you remember for that night? What do you remember? Yeah. And it was just like, yeah, it happened. It was so cool. Like, we were already such big fans, but it just felt like we were one big happy family because we were in such close quarters. And he was just a normal, cool guy. Like, That's we were so just celebrating cool. birthdays together. So I was the OG bill murray meeting story <laughs> i love it and brand for you kate i love it right yeah so just like i'm waiting for uh, hugh jackman to give me a call i'm also waiting for bill murray to give me a call and <laughs> he's like you're the girl from the italian restaurant <laughs> yeah i'm know. sure he remembers that i'm sure he's listening to this and if you are bill uh you can call my 800 number i'm happy to talk maybe i'll get back to you we'll see <laughs> so Even after this lengthy career, I mean, he's obviously still active. Uh, He's still very much an enigma. There's a lot of conflicting reports about him. You know, he's either this goofball that's super fun with all of his fans, or he's just like a total pain in the ass on the set of his films. But it's definitely worth noting that his artistic abilities have been kind of... uh, I don't know. People have set aside his notoriously bad temperament to welcome his his artistic abilities. And because of all of his mood swings, Dan Aykroyd dubbed him the Murricane. <laughs> That's how much of a reputation he has for having problems on set. And we're barely scratching the surface with some of these. I mean, there's one that Richard Dreyfus has confirmed that they didn't get along in the, in the making of What About Bob, where Bill Murray was screaming at Richard Dreyfus on set and was like yelling, like, everyone hates you. You're you're tolerated and okay. threw an ashtray at him. Okay. Yeah. There's one producer called Laura Ziskin. She recalled having a disagreement with Bill Murray that led him to tossing her in a lake. And she said in 2003, Bill also threatened to throw me across the parking lot and then broke my sunglasses and threw them across the parking lot. He didn't get along with Sean Young during the production of Stripes, and Sean Young refused to work with him ever again. During the making of Charlie's Angels, Lucy Liu allegedly threw punches at Bill Murray. and <gasps> or, Yeah, it was because he told her that she could not act. Because he's been in the industry for so long, like he's not immune to this. People have told him that you're difficult to work with, and he almost kind of wears it as a badge of honor, so to speak. But That's his surprising. his response to that is always, well, it's just because some people that I work with, like Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson, they know how to treat people. They're good people to work with, and that's why, you know, I don't get along with everyone else. He kind of became disillusioned with the industry and its treatment of people. You have to wonder if his outbursts, I mean, obviously there are exceptions to this and I'm sure his temper is a real thing, but you have to wonder if the people that he's picking fights with and getting genuinely mad at are like people that deserve it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I just, that's kind of where I left I off know. with this because I, I was thinking, you know, gosh, I've loved Bill Murray for so long, but is he really just a huge asshole and like just doesn't give a f- and just 
does whatever he wants, and that's not good. But then on the flip side, I feel like it's almost like his retaliation against the film industry, which we know is very corrupt and ugly at times. So I don't know. We don't know. If you know, let us know at podcastdesignpickle.com. I'd love to hear. And if you've met Bill Murray, please let us know. (laughs) I'd love to hear your stories if you can top mine. Right. But yeah, it's it's weird because he says working with certain people, like the aforementioned directors, it's fine. Like they like him and everything's great. But it's when he's working with people who are like industry people who don't treat people well, then he retaliates. But I don't know. Who knows? Regardless, he is a trailblazer. And I mean, he's been nominated and and has won a ton of awards. He's won Academy Awards, BAFTAs, Emmys, Golden Globes. He also received the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 2016. So, I mean, what is his secret? What is his secret? How does Bill Murray be Bill Murray after all this time? How does he keep reinventing himself? And he's been quoted as saying, so the secret is to have a sense of yourself, your real self, your unique self, and not just once in a while or once in a day, but all throughout the day, the week, and life. You know what they say, ain't no try, ain't nothing to do it but to do it. (laughs) So Jess, I ask you, is Bill Murray the worst? In good faith, and because he's a man of Chicago, (laughs) I cannot say nor proclaim that he's the worst. I understand, and this is the same for a lot of people that we cover, but I get where they might be difficult at times. I think highly creative people, when they're so passionate about like him getting involved in scripts and trying to change things and wanting to do things his own way, I would be really frustrated by that. But I also think that with people like that, you see the end result, and it's so worth it, as you quoted earlier in the episode, that you just can't say that they're the worst because they genuinely care and they're trying to make the project better. So you can't get mad at that. It's annoying. Mm-hmm. And it's probably like, oh my God, shut up, dude, from time to time. <laughs> but I've always loved him. To be honest, none of this changed my opinion of him. I think he's yeah. so iconic and just such a legend and has paved the way for so many other comedians to be their authentic selves that there's no way that I could say he's the worst. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every episode we do, I have a predetermined opinion of that person. And it's either kind of like up or down. And this one was like Bill Murray. It was kind of an enigma. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Because I think I had this vision of him just being this iconic, hilarious person. And as I researched, I was kind of like, ooh, I don't know. Yeah. Because, you know, it's really easy to kind of write him off as this just fairy floating around drinking whiskey and doing funny things (laughs) but there's also kind of a part of it that's like sort of sad in a way you know it's kind of depressing to think that he's i don't know but i think he recognized that too and safe to say the world would not be the same without his films and certain lines and scenes from those films that he came up with on the spot like that to me is just chef's kiss I'm so excited for you to see Stripes now. Oh, my God. You're going to okay, die. Fine, I'll watch it tonight. I'll watch it. I'm also going to watch uh, A Very Murray Christmas tonight because, should. again, we're getting to the holidays, and I'm sick of this Groundhog Day stuff. Wait a so on that note. All the names of the movies. <laughs> 
If you uh, think Kate's really- the worst for saying <laughs> all of its movie titles in one sentence, let us know. <laughs> I already did it in the intro. True. <laughs> like the same exact line. If you disagree and you feel like temper tantrums are left to toddlers, then let us know at podcast.designpickle.com and follow us on Instagram or Twitter or listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whatever you feel like at that moment. Just be your inner Bill Murray and do whatever you feel like. And we'll be back next week with more of who may or may not be the worst. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>